When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Maybe it's just that you don't know how to use social courtesy. Oh, that's old-fashioned. Watch how Lizzie Post and Dan Post act as host and hostess. They know that courtesy means showing respect, thinking of the other person, real friendliness. Hello! And welcome to Awesome Etiquette. Where we explore modern etiquette through the lens of consideration, respect, and honesty. On today's show, we take your questions on the long goodbye extended family borrowing the lake house, to spread or spoon jam or jelly, and how to handle different budgets between friends. For Awesome Etiquette Sustaining Members, our question of the week is about managing pictures taken of you so that they don't end up on social media. Plus your most excellent feedback, Etiquette Salute, and the second installment of Lizzie's postscript interviews with Michelle Achiavati about how to plan end-of-life ceremonies. All that's coming up. Awesome Etiquette comes to you from the studios of our home offices in Vermont and is proud to be produced by the Emily Post Institute. I'm Lizzie Post. And I'm Dan Post-Senning. Hey, cuz! How's it going this fine morning? It's going really well, but I made some faux pas that I feel like I need to talk about in this space. This seems like the good space to talk about them. Um, I believe on an earlier episode, we talked about how I was having uh, my cousin and her new husband come and stay for a weekend. And okay, cool. Well, we talk on this show when it comes to house guests a lot about setting dates, set your date, set the date, set the departure date, set the start date, probably set those in the reverse order, but set them, make sure you set them with your guests. And it was really funny because we had set them, but the, the way it was phrased, I didn't realize that they wanted to stay Sunday night too. And as you know, we had an all day filming shoot on Monday that I was going to have to get ready for. So it was one of those very, I feel like Trisha Post moments, a derangement where like, <laughs> you know, it, the idea that you had in mind versus the idea they had in mind. So it's a quick, you know, re- rearranging of things. And I ended up creating a second faux pas out of this faux pas because I now had to ask my guests if they would please help me to actually ready my house for this shoot that was happening on Monday. One of my guests, whom I had met for the first time on this trip, and the new up, husband, the, the new husband, ended up mowing my lawn because this was they were going to be filming in the lawn and everything. And I was just, I was like Lizzie Post, I can't believe you have your guests like mowing lawn and moving like rake leaf piles and like helping you do all this stuff that you couldn't get done before they were coming. It was so silly, but thank goodness. I mean, that's the love of family. Carolyn, my dear cousin piped up immediately when when she heard that there was going to be a shoot on Monday and that they were going to be there Monday morning, uh, meaning the, the that she and her husband would still be there Monday morning. She was yeah. like, what can we do to help? Much easier if you just like order us around and tell us what would be helpful. We'll say no to anything we really can't do. I was like, okay, good to know. And I 
really like your cousin. Yes. No, it was you. You would have you would have really been been grateful for her as I was. Um, and I do really like your cousin. We've crossed you've paths met her. A few yes, times totally, and, totally. But this affirms my high opinion of, of her. her. Yeah, no, she is really wonderful, and she is that guest who who just she goes with the flow. She's very easy. She's very much so wanting you to tell her what would be good for you as the host. And so that was good. There was also another quasi faux pas. We don't usually tell people like often we say don't give up your bedroom for your guests that mm-hmm. it can often make a guest feel awkward to p- literally put a host out of their bed unless there's often like a physical reason or something for it and there are certainly times and places where this happens like my house where the situation of having a couple come and stay I just didn't feel comfortable putting them in my living room which has a very a very nice fold-out couch but but I just wanted them to be able to have a better experience than that for the th- like three nights they were going to be with me. And so I made, and I was very comfortable with them. Carolyn's my cousin. She's slept in that bed with me many times. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so I was like, you guys take my bedroom. You'll have the good, th- th- this would provide them with the good shower, the bathroom that doesn't have a litter box in it currently. You know what I mean? Is like, this is a much better guest experience. And since we're close family, like I know she, she won't feel too weird about it, but she did say, Oh my, gosh i don't want to be putting you out of your bed i was like no no no. trust me you really do <laughs> like it's it's the, it'll it's make the way me feel go. so much better about asking you to mow the lawn yeah later yes hours. exactly when i then realized you're staying a night i wasn't prepared for um but it's it, again easy things to work around but a funny little like you know three or four and we wouldn't call them faux pas they're not like super bad but they're things we often try to say don't do all happened in the one weekend with my cousin and her husband who is loved by the way. <laughs> well, thank you for, for walking me and us backwards through it. I saw in the the show notes, the script that you had asked a house guest to mow the lawn. And I was preparing, <laughs> knowing who your house guests were, to give kudos and props to the new family member for stepping up and, and <laughs> joining the fray and making a, a good name for himself. But he did. <laughs> I, I, I like the track back to the <laughs> the the compounding series of miscommunications Thanks. or minor faux pas and yeah. um frankly that none of them turned into big deals that, no, that it continued no. to roll and um we're handing out etiquette gold stars all over the place totally 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 well that was my weekend cuz how was yours oh exactly the opposite <laughs> Quiet. I had the house to myself for two days and one night. <laughs> oh my goodness. Bachelorhood returns. My parents love to do these long distance bike rides. And my mother had, through a series of complicated decisions about, okay, I'm going to go on this part of the trip and then go join those people on that part of a different trip, had left her bicycle at my mother and father-in-law's house about three hours away. And... My mother and my wife and my daughters all went to pick up my mother's bike at my mother and father-in-law's house and made a visit out of it, visited the other cousins. It was awesome. They had a great time and I got the place to myself. So I had the, the... Whatever the inverse of a house guest Of a house guest. You had a quiet house. You and the dog and that's it. (laughs) I'm assuming there was a lot of football then being watched on Sunday. (laughs) If if only it had all worked out so that that overlapped with all of the football I wanted to watch on Sunday. Oh, no. They were back by 
by football. They were backed by football. <laughs> Although I have a really lovely wife who understands that I don't actually carve out a lot of time for things like sitting in front of a TV. And yeah. she's really, really understanding about my silly, um, I won't call it need or desire, but want to <laughs> just sit in front of a football game for an uninterrupted three hours periodically. <laughs> Sometimes she even joins you there. She does. And she never thought she would. <laughs> well, I am glad that different though they were, we both had great weekends. And I got to say, I am I'm ready for the week. I'm excited to get to some of our listener questions today. I like to hear that. Let's do it. Awesome Etiquette is here to answer your questions. You can email them to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com, leave a voicemail or text at 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463. Or you can reach us on social media. On Twitter, we are at emilypostinst. On Instagram, we are at emilypostinstitute. And on Facebook, we're Awesome Etiquette. Just use the hashtag Awesome Etiquette with your social media post so that we know you want your question on the show. Awesome Etiquette gets support from StoryWorth. There are some stories about your mom's life that you truly never get tired of hearing. From hilarious to heartfelt, tear-jerking to plot-twisting, mom's retelling of the events always brings a bit of joy. Just in time for Mother's Day, we here at Awesome Etiquette found the perfect gift that can capture all of your mom's stories for your family forever. It's called StoryWorth. StoryWorth helps you preserve precious memories and stories from your mom or a mother figure in your life for years to come. Here's how it works. Each week, StoryWorth emails your loved one a thought-provoking question that you get to help pick. What was your first job? Who was your first crush? <laughs> StoryWorth makes the writing process a breeze. All your loved one needs to do is to respond to the email prompt with a story. Long or short, it doesn't matter. I did this with my mom, and it was really, really rewarding. You'll be emailed a copy of your loved one's responses as they're submitted over the course of the year. You'll get to enjoy their retelling of the stories, some you probably already know, or maybe the ones that you're surprised by you haven't heard before. <laughs> After that year of fun discovery and reminiscing, StoryWorth compiles your loved one's stories and photos into a beautiful keepsake hardcover book that you'll be able to share and revisit for generations to come. You can even keep a copy of the book for yourself. Give all the moms in your life a unique, heartfelt gift that you all will cherish for years. Story Worth. Right now, save $10 on your first purchase when you go to storyworth.com slash manners. That's storyworth, S-T-O-R-Y-W-O-R-T-H dot com slash manners. It's manners with an S to save $10 on your first purchase. And now back to our show. Our first question this week is a short question about the long goodbye. L.A. wrote to us saying, I also have a question about the infamous long goodbye scenario. Ha ha. Even Frank Sinatra sang, The fire is slowly dying, and my dear, we're still goodbying. Yay, and yay. that is the most you will oh ever hear God, me I saying. I am so proud <laughs> of you right now. Don't delete that. Don't delete that, Chris. <laughs> 
This might be my worst manners of all. So I will do the opposite of it by getting straight to the question. How do you make a proper goodbye at a get-together? L.A. It's so funny. I was just reading about um, taking your leave or leaving in the 1922 edition of Emily Post Etiquette. Ah. And it was really interesting because Dan and I spent much of the, the 20th edition that you've heard us talk about that we're writing doing things like starting each chapter with a quote from the 1922 edition and then sort of referencing the idea that in Emily's day, this happened. And today you see more of this. And here's in 1922, Emily saying, well, traditionally, this was supposed to happen. Mm-hmm. And it was that the guest of honor is really supposed to to start the leaving and that other guests follow suit fairly quickly after, but they don't try to leave until the guest of honor is ready to leave. And that should be kind of a balanced and uh, known thing as well. And then she says, but often the guest of honor has no clue that they're supposed to be the one doing this. You know, it's like here she's referencing the the tidier, um, more uh, structured version of it. And she's like, but so many yeah. people don't know the structure. And so this is what ends up happening. Anyone who's ready, hopefully not too soon after the meal, can stand up and say, this has been lovely, da-da-da-da-da. And it's, it, it was kind of cute to see her playing back and forth between that. But I think today, and probably even in Emily's day as well, the nature of the gathering is really going to dictate how this happens. I feel like for larger, more open-ended gatherings, think about a housewarming or something like that where you have a start and end time to the party. Basically, whenever you feel like you've spent enough time at the party, you can then go find the host and say, oh, so lovely to see your home or, oh, this has been such a great cocktail party, whatever it is. And then you can say, "I, you know, we have to get going, but thank you so much for having us. This was great. That kind of a thing, I think, is absolutely fine. At a dinner party where it's more structured, you're definitely waiting to say goodbye until dinner has been served. And I would say there's been a a decent amount of after dinner time respected, Dan. You know what I mean? Like, I think if dinner was served and everyone is making a mass exodus because the host was like, well, this was lovely. Thank you all for coming. That's one thing. But often there's sort of a a little bit of coffee, maybe an after dinner drink, some conversation in the living room instead of at the table. And I would say you want to be there for that at least maybe like a half hour or so. And without taking the risk of putting a time on it, Mm -hmm. I was thinking something similar, letting the table be cleared and people to resettle to the den or the living room. But you you want to avoid that impression of, okay, we're all eating dessert. And then as I put my fork down, I'm reaching with my other hand to pick up my coat and head out the <laughs> yeah, door. Yeah, exactly. We're really trying to paint the counter picture where the offense might be found. It's that. Good image. Okay, thanks so much. I appreciate that I've met my bare minimum requirements. Thank you for providing for me. I'm out of here. Yeah, you don't want to create that impression at all. But it is true that different events are going to have a slightly different feel and you as the guest are going to need to pay attention to that and to think about what it would feel like to abruptly leave or to to leave in any of these these different scenarios and try to gauge well for yourself what feels right. Lizzie Post, I love the historical reference. You <laughs> took me back way further than I was going in my own mind with this question. And it reminds me about the the intelligence that comes from knowing rules and breaking them well. Uh, And the idea that 
that there's a relational set of questions that you're asking yourself. Who's hosting this party? Who are the guests at this party? What are we here for? That's how you start to determine the nature of the event. The the thing that we're saying is so important in terms of figuring out exactly what you do without the clear indicators from your host. Thanks so much for coming. We really appreciated it or a time on the invitation or a guest of honor signaling that it's okay to leave now because the function of the party is essentially completed. It really is up to you. And knowing those other markers lets you kind of keep an eye out for them and, and not make that big mistake that I just described where, where you do the exact opposite as yes. opposed to just making a good choice at the right moment. The guest of honor doesn't have a babysitter at home. You do, and you need to be home at a certain time. Mm -hmm. There are some practical concerns that are going to push you in certain directions. I would say that the, the bare minimum, the thing that we often talk about is the do not miss it is that you find that host and that you acknowledge to the host that you're leaving and that you thank them for having you. And to me, that's oftentimes the answer to the how of the question. Absolutely. As opposed to yeah. the, <laughs> the when or the who. But, okay, so I'm saying goodbye. How do I do it? It feels so awkward. And the the, the thing that I hold on to in that moment is you thank them. Yeah. And that makes it feel much less awkward. It keeps the focus where it's meant to be, which is on the relationship, on the experience of the event, on the effort that someone else put into hosting you. And you're acknowledging you're leaving but you're not making the event you're leaving. You're making the event and the focus of the attention, the thanks, the experience itself. Mm -hmm. And in some ways it can sound the way a thank you note sounds. I was thinking absolutely. even more specifically absolutely. about the how. Yeah. And what are the things that you say that you build your sample script on? Um, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciated it. The first sentence, you thank them. And then the original thought, the idea that maybe there's one thing that you could say that personalizes the thanks in some way, that connects it specifically to the experience or the event or the thing that you're thanking for. So the dinner was lovely. We appreciated you making the effort to get us all together again. Mm -hmm. Something something specific to the event. And now you're in what I would call that B plus A minus A goodbye territory where you're thinking <laughs> you're being specific i want to know what dan's a plus goodbye sounds like <laughs> it, well this is the part where i often then fall off and and fail but i would say if you can get the right tone on the thank you so much bye see you later <laughs> the, the, the upbeatness to the bye so it doesn't sound like you've done everything right and then you failed because you had to say you're goodbye. leaving or you're yeah. or you're or that goodbye yeah a plus. <laughs> it's funny how I feel like saying saying goodnight is so much easier than saying goodbye. You know, I don't know why, but it feels yeah. it feels more gentle or or like see you later. Yeah, like oh, see you next thank time. Thank you so much. Can't wait for next time. Bye. So we, can <laughs> yeah. I tell a little bit of a post personal story? Absolutely. On this one? By the way, this could end up being a very long question. Like I've I've got a million thoughts in my head here. Keep going. We used to play this little game with our grandfather, Bill Post, Poppy, when it was time to say goodbye. And <laughs> he would say, uh, see you later, alligator. And then you were meant to reply as a youngster, in a while, crocodile. Mm -hmm. And then he would then, and this just in the, we're being silly kids, I wish there was another giant lizard. 
but uh, plant you now, dig you later, sweet potato, at which point everyone laughs and then you can kind of <laughs> wave goodbye. And and I now do this with my kids and their grandfather. And, later, alligator. And if we don't do it, they get really upset. Ari oh, was yeah. mad that she hadn't been able to properly say goodbye to Gramps, who was holding the, the, the dog inside the house and had <laughs> made that connection moment with her as we walked yeah. away. Yeah. But it, you can play with it a little bit with with kids but we we do all that because that that goodbye moment it does feel very final in some ways yeah. and at some point you just have to say it and move through and it do it and absolutely and do it absolutely i'm reminded of um my parents and their goodbyes where my my mother and i very much so take after her in this respect could talk all night until the next morning i mean she could easily sit in that living room or at that you know clear dinner table and go all night long and there's this moment that happens between the two of them where my dad, who is often now up and out of his chair, kind of like futzing around a little bit or like moving, moving and shifting foot to foot, puts his hands on on her shoulders and gives her a little bit of a shoulder rub. And it's the indicator of Trish, it's time to go. We are overstaying. It's like, you know, pushing on midnight, <laughs> like time to say goodbye. And it's this cute thing that's developed between the two of them. Do you and Pooj have any kind of like signals that you do as like your couple goodbye? Like we got it. Come on. I got to really. Yeah. But give us another 15 <laughs> years, right? Give you a few more years. eh? like, and, and maybe some chances at more socialization once this pandemic is really under wraps. And we will have our own secret code physical language as well. <laughs> LA, you have given us so much to talk about, and we really could go on and on about goodbyes and how we execute them and how both delightful and awkward they can be. However, we must bring this question to a close and say our own goodbyes to it. We thank you so much for writing in with multiple questions for us over the past couple weeks, and we certainly hope that our answer helps. Take care. See you next time. Bye. Take care. And when you're invited to a party, leave on time and courteously, too, thanking your host sincerely for the good time you've had. All these things help to make a good party, a party that's fun for all. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This question is titled, Something's Off Here. Dear Lizzie and Dan, thank you for your wonderful podcast. Your advice in dealing with awkward situations really helps me to respond in what I hope is a kind and positive way as I make it through each day. My question has to do with people who ask us to use our lake house. My husband and I enjoy owning a second home, and we like to rent it to help with the expenses, as well as to share it with our family. Part of the agreement is that upon leaving, we ask renters to choose to clean the house so that it is just as they found it when they arrived, or they can pay us a cleaning fee. No one has ever paid the fee, and we have never had any problems, fortunately. 
For family, however, this is not the case. We do not ask them to pay to use the house. We do, however, ask that they leave the house the way they found it. At the minimum, when they leave, we ask that they take out the trash, be sure there isn't any food left out, wet beach towels are hung up, and overall, the house appears to be picked up. They are welcome to use our towels, etc., and I will gladly put these in the wash the next time I'm at the house. Our siblings and spouses have always left the house as we asked. However, their children now have families of their own and are upset that we expect them to clean up after themselves. They complain that it is too much work to pack up the children, etc., while also cleaning a house, and that we are not being nice to them. At a recent family gathering, this point was made quite clear to me by a few people attending, and it completely caught me off guard. I didn't respond and walked away because I didn't think this conversation should take place in front of a large group. Now, I don't know how to respond to what was said to me, and I need your help. We really don't want to cause any problems within our family. However, we don't see how we are being unreasonable. We need to know that our house is being left in good order as we aren't always able to travel and be sure everything is okay in a timely manner. Is it too much to ask that when we arrive to use our house, we find it reasonably picked up and without any ants or foul smells? Is what we're asking wrong, given that we are letting them use the house for free? If we're being unreasonable, please tell us. We don't want to be the cause of any ill will in the family. However, this is our home and we want it to be used in a way that makes us comfortable. I look forward to any advice you can give us. Sincerely, Nancy. Nancy, thank you so much for the question. And I have two levels or tiers to the reply or the advice that I'm thinking about. Totally. And the first thought has to do with the nature of how you handle the house with family moving forward. And the other has to do with the, the dynamics of the situation that you described, that mm -hmm. awkward moment at the family gathering where you were confronted about this and the best way to move past or through that and, and maintain good relationships in the family. As far as the house, I can affirm 10,000%. You are being absolutely reasonable. Yes. You can <laughs> not worry about that one bit. In fact, to me, the equation is so clear that yeah. it, it, it's it, the answer is within the question in that it's incredibly generous of you to allow the family to use the place without paying the usual rent or fee. And I would just apply the exact same system to them that you apply to the renters. If there's a way that you can identify what it costs to clean the house, mm -hmm. and it sounds like you have, and if renters are able to meet that standard and avoid that fee, I don't think there's any reason why family shouldn't be treated the same way, particularly if you've had some issues or difficulties with it. Yeah. That it's, it's really simple. You can leave the house the way you found it. You can pay a fee if that's too difficult for you to do or you're, you're not able to um, – recognize all of the little things, the standards that, that, that kept the place in the shape that it was when they arrived. Mm -hmm. I think paying a small fee to get that house cleaned afterwards is something that is entirely reasonable and can just be a condition for using the house. And you don't need to make it a point that it's something that's failed in the past. You can talk about it as um, part of more and more people being involved that as you have a larger and larger group, that you've been thinking about the way you want to manage the house and this is the way you're going to be doing it going forward. And then people know that whatever it's been in the past from this point on, that's what it'll be. And I think that's a really clear way to proceed and is the, the path of least resistance that I would probably be most likely to take myself. 
I couldn't have said it better. And as I was reading this question, I was so reminded of some of the things we have to deal with on my side of the family that has the vineyard property, because there, everybody, all even family members, not just non-family, have to pay the rental fees. There are increased cleaning fees if it's left in in less than ideal condition for the cleaners themselves. You know, it's like they don't want the cleaners having to do dishes or scrub pots and pans or do the laundry. So all those things are the responsibility of the renters. And if the renters don't do that, if they leave food out, things like that, then the the cleaning fee goes up. It's just an automatic thing that happens. And when that's a consistent thing and people are arguing about the cleaning fees, there are uh, sometimes demonstrations of what clean actually means. So when Nancy is asking, mm-hmm. are we reasonable? I'm like going, you guys are casual and breezy. Like you're like far beyond, un- like, but beyond reasonable. You're like very, very generous and catering compared to some of the legendary stories I've heard in yeah. my family about these things. Well, and and it's not at all uncommon exactly what you described. One of the things, oftentimes there's a rental rate for family that's different than what non-family pay. And it just covers the basic cost. One of the things that can be really nice about that family rental rate is that it is so small. It's oftentimes much less than what it would usually cost to get a place like that or get a hotel. But it also put some value on it. And I think sometimes paying a little bit helps communicate to people the seriousness of the gift that's being given or the thing that they're participating in. And oftentimes getting a little bit of that awareness, um, skin in the game, skin in the game. Yep. I think builds that awareness in a way that, that might be really helpful. Something to think about. It, It might be a bigger step than you're used to in your family and might not be as far as you want to go, but I think it's, it's very reasonable and not at all uncommon. Because there was a second layer to this question that is a little harder to deal with. It's that moment where at a family gathering, your nieces and nephews, or maybe maybe their parents, I don't know who who is actually doing the complaining or the mentioning, but they bring up to you in front of other people that this is unfair, that the way you're treating them isn't nice, the way you're extending your generosity doesn't work for them. And I know what would happen in both of my families, my larger families, <laughs> if um, Pipsqueak third generation here piped up, and, and, and I'm speaking about my own generation, and was complaining about the free lake house that we were just treated to a week of vacation at, simply because the kids who I pack up every day would be, you know, is, is something I have to do. And I, I know that this would not be tolerated by my aunts and uncles or any of my grandparents uh, if I was voicing things that way. And so I, I I don't know what Nancy's family is like in terms of expectations on people expressing themselves that way, expressing themselves that way in a group setting or to elders in their family. You know, different families have very different dynamics. But for me, I never would have gotten away with pulling that off. I never would have even tried. I, like, and I guarantee you that like there's a lot of people out there who would be in the situation of being mortified that they hadn't left a place so clean. So I'm thinking in the moment that walking away was probably a good thing. I probably would have included a line and Nancy, you may have and and just not put it in your in your note to us. But I probably would have wanted to say something like, 
Betsy, I think we should talk about that at another time. And that's, you know, and then I would, you know, excuse myself from the conversation if I needed to. But I I think I would make it clear that I want to have that discussion because I, the person owning the house that is being misused, you know, have some thoughts on the matter. And I don't really want to embarrass you in front of the rest of this group by telling them just how terribly you left that house and that I don't even think I should be extending you the offer anymore because of how terrible it was. That's at least where where my brain goes on that thought. My brain went to a similar place. <laughs> I think yeah. it, it, there are some times where we say, you know, you're, you're, you're looking for ways to build a cord, build bridges. I think being surprised in a moment like that with something that is so, so egregious and frankly would ultimately, if you responded the way that many people would normally and rightly respond, would be really embarrassing for yeah. the other people. Yes. That in some ways you're taking the bigger hit by containing and controlling yourself and figuring out a better time to have that conversation. I liked your sample script. I, I, and I also like your reminder that just because someone's coming at you doesn't mean that your side of the, that conversation shouldn't be well represented Mm -hmm. and should get lost that it's not all about dealing with this grievance on the other side. In fact, that grievance is, to my mind, not very difficult to deal with mm-hmm. because there's a very clear answer. Yeah. Um, I'm really sorry you feel that way. The conditions for renting our house moving forward are this, and you can let me know if you want to participate in that or not. And and, and that the, the, the discussion doesn't need to be any more than that. So I think anything that you do beyond that is a kindness. Absolutely. And I think there's nothing wrong with reaching out to the relatives that brought it up and say, Hey, I was caught off guard at the party or I wasn't ready to talk about this at the party, but I do really want to want to address it because I think it's important that we talk about these things. And then you can enter into that conversation with them or as Dan often suggests, ask permission to have the conversation. Hi, you brought something up at the family party. Uh, would love the opportunity to address it with you. Would you know? Would you be willing to talk with me about it? Yeah. I have some feelings and thoughts about it as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. You know, should they decline that conversation, then the next time they ask to use the house, you can spell out very clearly for them either a no or, as Dan said, here are the rules for the house now moving forward. If you're willing to, then yay. But if you're not, I can't say yes. And again, I want to make it very clear. This is all very reasonable stuff to do when it comes to a house of yours that hasn't been treated the way it was supposed to have been treated. Nancy, thank you so much for the question. I really hope that things work out well with your family and this lake house moving forward and that everyone's able to enjoy it and that your generosity is appreciated. We certainly appreciate it here at Awesome Etiquette. Yes, when Jimmy shared the stand with his friends and they all shared in the work, then there was more fun for every member of the group. So you learn to share with others. You'll like it. Your friends will like you, too. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Our next question asker wonders, spread or spoon? Can you please settle a silly dispute between my partner and I? 
He thinks it's proper to spread jelly on a sandwich with a spoon. I can see how that could be easier if you're getting a large amount, but for a more controlled spread, you must use a butter knife. Please weigh in on this silly argument. Sincerely, Lauren in Connecticut. Lauren, we love the silly arguments because they they are the stuff that partnerships, marriages, sibling rivalries are made of, best friendships, all of the above. <laughs> um, you think this is silly? I know. Well, you think like... this is silly, Lizzie? <laughs> Well, there was a part of me that was like, is this really an etiquette question? I'm like, we're talking about utensils and how to use them, Lucy Post. Yes, it is an etiquette question. But I, I, it, it's, I'm with you. It's kind of like, eh. Like, we're not like at the dinner table in a formal setting making a PB&J, y'all. Like, you know what I mean? Spreading <laughs> jelly with a spoon, though? Really? I don't think I do. I just, I should say, I am camp knife. I don't spoon out my jelly with a spoon and then spread it with a knife. <laughs> Except, I am going to give an exception here. When I'm dining out at a restaurant where they have put the jelly into a little pot and the pot has a little spoon that's a serving yep. spoon, I would frankly do a combination of what Lauren's talking about here. And I would spoon the jelly out either onto my butter plate so that I take all I need and pass it along, or I would spoon it, you know, right onto my piece of toast, let's say toast in this case. And then I would pick up my, you know, put the serving spoon back with the jelly and then pick up my butter knife and spread it because I do agree. I think you're going to get a better spread with that butter knife. Not impossible to use the back of the spoon, but it's not as effective, as efficient. It, It works in the long run might be a way to say it for a silly question. I think I gave a serious answer here. <laughs> I, no, I think you did. And and I like the acknowledgement that oftentimes in those little jars, there is a serving spoon. Yeah. And I think you start to get into, I mean, if we, if we really want to do the, the serious etiquette answer, it's that knives are used for spreading Absolutely. and the spoon as a, a serving utensil would be used to apply it or put it there. I am glad that you mentioned the little jelly pot with the serving spoon, because clearly there are times where the spoon is the appropriate utensil. You're meant to use it to serve yourself. But not to spread. (laughs) No. From a very classic etiquette perspective, spoons aren't for spreading. That's your knife. And I'm sympathetic. When I look into my utensils drawer in the kitchen and I'm making a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, if I take the serrated knives that Mm. are still the dull knives... They're not wide enough. I can't get jelly out of the jar yeah. with them. I have to use the broader work. butter knives. And it's it's a whole different experience making the sandwich. So I, I, I can understand making the decision when you're looking at that drawer to pick up the spoon, which that, seems know, like the most practical night choice. In the kitchen, you know. <laughs> so I want to make that exemption and but I like the and at the same time give a serious etiquette answer of that utensils are designed to be used in certain ways and When you're not talking about that little jar on the table, when you're talking about using a spoon to scoop and spread, there are situations where I would look at that and say to myself, that looks a little funny. Probably the same way it's happening between this partnership. (laughs) And I think being aware of that impression, it can be fun and it can also be a good thing to be aware of because you don't want to seem... I don't know. I don't want to say like a kid or childish or like you're just need so much that you that you grab the big serving spoon and the small serving spoon would do That's a or lot something. of jelly. Yeah, where it starts to create a, just a different impression than I'm making a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and eleven o'clock in your own kitchen with your partner, or your spouse. I think that's 
great well, you did, but just exactly. be aware that it that it might look a little funny to someone in a different context absolutely i think that's a very very good parsing of of when and where you might use the utensils for their intended usage and use the utensils creatively and to not create even more utensil usage by switching between a spoon I know, a third and you know thing what to i wash, mean right? yeah exactly 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 and I'm with you on that when there isn't a knife that has that broader blade on it. You're like, oh, a spoon probably is a better bet than the serrated knife with the tip that just doesn't doesn't do the jelly well. Lauren, this is definitely a first in, in awesome etiquette history. And we really enjoyed getting this silly little question. We hope that you love our somewhat serious but kind of silly little answer. Our next question is titled, Funny About Money. My question is, how do I respond when friends try to say that I am better off than they are and that they are too poor to do X, Y, and Z if I ever try to bring up doing something together? I had a friend who once taught me to think about money in terms of priorities. In other words, don't think about how you can't afford something, but think about how it's not a priority for you. I really like that philosophy that empowers people to make choices about how to spend their money rather than focus on what they can't do. So what advice do you have for me to manage conversations when I have friends who try to make me feel guilty about their financial position relative to mine? I end up feeling guilty and sympathetic, and I don't like how often this topic comes up. Thank you very much for considering my question to use on the show. This challenge has bothered me for years, and I feel as though I've tried many ways to approach this conversation and still always end up feeling bad after it comes up again, and I'm at a loss for how to respond. Best to you both, cash-strapped single mom. Take us away, cuz! <laughs> Thank you for this question, and we titled this question Funny About Money, but there's part of me that wants to say, you know, there's nothing funny about money. Right. The One of the things about money is that it's almost always a serious topic. Mm -hmm. And partially because it is a very concrete thing, something that we don't always have a lot of control over in that it's, it's, it's a reality. There's only this much in the bank account or that much in the wallet. And it is connected to our values. And the way we manage money is connected to our values mm -hmm. and... The whole concept of money is that it represents value. It's it's fundamentally what it is. And that makes any discussion about money potentially a values discussion. And we started to touch on this just a little bit in a, a previous episode of the podcast when we were talking about asking people for money mm -hmm. and what types of emergencies or situations rise to the level where it's okay to ask people for money. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes the answer is that questions about money, even if they're light or aren't about things that seem so serious, are connected to those values, decisions that we make in so many ways mm -hmm. that 
we need to take extra care with them. And that's why there's a lot of etiquette around it. One thought that I had as I read this particular question was about guilt and sympathy mm -hmm. and the feeling of guilt that our question asker is feeling when people are explicit about not having as much money or not being able to afford to do something that maybe our question asker can do. It's that feeling of guilt. That's the biggest impediment to the relationship in mm -hmm. this particular situation. That's what it sounds like to me, because I feel like there could be some accord in terms of figuring out the right way to talk about money or the right way to make choices that everybody can afford to participate in. Mm -hmm. But the more we can get away from feelings of guilt about needing to organize the discussion in that way, and the more we can lean into the feelings of sympathy around really empathizing and connecting with where everyone's coming from, the better off we're going to be having those discussions well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think because it's come up before, one of the easiest ways to approach one of these conversations is to acknowledge that it can be something that people have different perspectives about or if you've showed some awareness, some sympathy, some empathy to where someone else is coming from, it's likely to be a lot easier to have the follow-up discussion about finding options that everyone can afford or Absolutely. options that don't require any money or maybe even putting the whole job of suggesting the viable options into someone else's hands so you don't end up in that situation to begin with. Dan, that's exactly where my mind went on this particular question. I, I know that I'm someone who sometimes has to pipe up and say that, that that idea doesn't fit my budget. And I am always so grateful when my friends say, oh, well, then let's let's do this instead. Or, oh, what would work for you? And I have some friends who, and, and cash-strapped single mom might not be in the position to do this themselves, but who are then able to say, you know what, let me make it my treat. I really want to do this thing with you. I think it would be so much fun. And I'm happy, happy, happy to take care of it for the day, the event, the whatever, the meal, whatever it is. And I know that I always feel so so much better. I mean, yes, it's very nice to be treated to do things, but it's also really nice to have my friend really positively and quickly correct themselves to a place of, oh, well, what what could we do that would work for you? And it it makes me feel like it's less about that particular thing happening, like if it was a, a spa day or something like that, and much more about, well, the point is for us all to get together as girlfriends or something like that. And if hanging out at someone's house and, and you know, baking together is a better option or going for a walk or something, it's really nice to feel like the focus is actually on us spending time together rather than us spending a particular value level of time together, a monetary level of time together, if that makes sense. Um, and I think for me, the other thing is that because I am the one piping up saying, oh, that, that wouldn't work for my budget. I really want my friends to understand that when I say that, I am not trying to say it to get sympathy or to make them feel guilty for making more money than I do or having more to work with than I do. Um, I try really hard to other times in our conversations never comment on something extravagant that they're doing that I couldn't do, but instead be very excited and happy for them that they got that experience or that item or, or were able to do this thing, you know, whatever it is. And I think that helps to not create that. I, I 
idea of guilt or that implication of guilt between the two of us. Your friends most likely, I can't speak for them, but they're probably really just trying to work responsibly within their boundaries, less so than trying to, as Dan, Dan was talking earlier about, rather than trying to make you feel guilty about the fact that you might be able to do something that they can't do. Guilt is a theme that has come up on this show repeatedly. Yeah. And there's a, a place that I feel like you and I started to get to a couple of years ago when we were talking about guilt and about how it's actually a very functional emotion yeah, to the degree true. that that's it true. can inspire you to make any useful changes. Mm-hmm. And that, that, that to the extent that feeling bad about something provides you with information to help you and others feel less bad, it's a really useful emotion. I think it's worth yeah. listening to those little pangs of guilt that sometimes pop up in our lives. Not always saying, oh, I shouldn't feel guilty or I, it's, not a, it's not right. Right. At the same time, guilt becomes functionally much less useful when you're feeling guilty about something you have no control over. Right. And when you can't make a correction to avoid that in the future. So in some ways, I, I, I wouldn't say don't feel guilty, which was where I had started when I was thinking about <laughs> this question. And I w- would like to finish having listened to my cousin talk about it a little bit, saying feel guilty to the extent that it helps you construct a better set of options for a friend or respond totally in a way that doesn't put guilt on them right? <laughs> um, to the extent that it prepares you for having that question the next time, but not to where it becomes an impediment to having that conversation. Cash strap single mom. We certainly hope that you are able to have really excellent get togethers with these friends moving forward. Thank you for your questions. Please send us updates or feedback on our answers to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com. You can leave us a voicemail or text at 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463. You can also reach us on social media. On Twitter, we are at emilypostinst. On Instagram, we are at emilypostinstitute. And on Facebook, we are awesomeetiquette. Just remember, use the hashtag awesomeetiquette with your posts so that we know you want your question on the show. If you love Awesome Etiquette, please consider becoming a sustaining member by visiting us at patreon.com slash awesomeetiquette. You'll get an ads-free version of the show and access to bonus questions and content. Plus, you'll feel great knowing that you help keep Awesome Etiquette on the air. And to those of you who are already sustaining members, thank you so, so much for your support. It's time for our feedback segment where we hear from you about the questions we answer and the topics we cover. Today, we have feedback from Dale via Instagram about the laundry room question. This was in episode 361. I can't help but remember the laundry room in my building in Queens. No apartment had an actual washing machine or dryer, and though it was a large six-floor building, there were six washers and five dryers, and people from around the world. This thing of waiting came up all the time. I would wait for about 10 minutes, then put the clothes in the dryer and put in enough money to get the dryer started on the lowest possible heat. If you just put the clothes aside, you may still be waiting just as long when the person finally comes to dry their clothes. I hated doing it. I was raised in a very small town in the cultural south, where part of good manners was to never touch anyone's clothing. But I did it anyway. Some people were delighted, some were angry, 
A few told the super, but he pointed out that if they had just stayed with their clothes, there wouldn't have been a problem. It was so stressful, though, that I finally started going to a neighborhood laundry, except in the snow. The manager there was a no-nonsense woman. She just took the clothes out of the washer and put them in her office. Dale, thank you so much for sharing that. It's I'll be very curious to hear what else we hear about the laundry room. I, I do feel like it is becoming the pizza episode again. <laughs> thank you, Dale. And thank you for sending us your thoughts and updates. Please do keep them coming. You can send your next feedback, update, or salute to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com. You can also leave us a voicemail or text at 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463. It's time for our Postscript segment where we dive deeper into a topic of etiquette. And today we're going to hear the next installment of Lizzie's interviews with Michelle Achiavati. This segment will focus on where to start when you are in the position of planning an end-of-life celebration, funeral, or memorial service. Michelle, I am so grateful to be here speaking with you again about funerals and end-of-life care and how we can be our best selves during them. And I know that when people turn to Emily Post to figure out how to plan a funeral or a memorial service or, or how to do some of the de detailed work around that, that they want a very this is what you do. One, two, three steps. Here we go. I know what I'm doing. It could be right. And that could be so comforting during a time where you're already stressed and probably at the max of your bandwidth emotionally. But funerals and services like this, it's much harder to have like a one, two, three approach to it. Where should we start if we're going to be the person managing, coordinating, pu putting on sort of this, this event that is to celebrate the deceased. I don't want to give people concrete steps because as comforting as it is, what I really want is for people to come up with something that is going to be really meaningful to them, meet their needs as mourners, honor the person that's died. All of that is, is so important. And so you can't have a one size fits all yeah. blueprint. And at the same time, acknowledge that like, this is a really overwhelming time. And so that that's really hard. And that's really valid for people to feel like this is hard and, and confusing. So I think the very, very first thing is to like, be okay with the fact that this is hard. And that that comes out of we're in a very different place in terms of relationships to death and dying and ceremony and ritual and spirituality and religion and all of these things now. So that there's a lot. That said, the most important place to start is with the person that's died. And we talked a little bit before about advanced directives and how important they are. And just to reiterate that, that it's just like, hopefully you can have really meaningful conversations with the people that you care about, about what their end of life wishes are and that they can write them down really clearly. You know, that said, I'm imagining this conversation is more about a scenario where that hasn't happened and we're kind of at a, at a loss or, you know, you have a, a directive, but you haven't had a chance to talk about it with that person. And it can still be very confusing to follow it. I know from my own experience, sitting down, helping people try to work through a directive and what it is that they mean, that sometimes even the most well-intentioned directives can be vague or leave a lot up to interpretation or simply say, do whatever makes you happy. And we're looking to do something that honors the life of the person that wrote the directive. And, and so there's just a lot of open space that can just be confusing and hard. So acknowledging that directives are a great place 
a necessary place to start and that they're not going to necessarily be a crystal ball that gives you all of the answers that you're going to need to pull off, you know, the funeral of the year. You actually bring up a good point that you say funeral of the the year. And it reminded me of like wedding of the year. And I loved when we were talking earlier and you had said, you know, a funeral is not a wedding. It is not a one and weddings aren't really totally one size fits all, but there's a a general practice that happens at every wedding that seems to no matter how unique your wedding is, like people exchange vows. There's some kind of like event afterwards usually. Hopefully there's a smooch in there. Some pictures get... Exactly. But it's just not the same when it comes to funerals. But death is still an event. Yes. And we can take an approach to to a funeral memorial service that's a bit like event planning. The nice thing about weddings is that really there's only two people whose opinions matter. They Mm -hmm. tend to be happy things. There's stress with planning a wedding, obviously. But when we're planning a funeral, there's a bunch of other things that are going on. One is the people that are planning are actively grieving. And that's exhausting. It's hard. It makes decision-making and thinking fuzzy. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you, and you're engaging with something that you really don't want to do because it's bringing the reality of death into this like weird logistical space. Mm-hmm. And so that's hard. And then the other thing is that there are many people that are going to care about what happens. And unlike a wedding where people might have input and you get to say, nope, you know, like bride and groom or bride and bride, groom and groom, <laughs> right? You know, whatever it is, like, they get to have the final say it's their day. Again, when this comes back to the, you know, the person whose day it is, is no longer living, can't give feedback. So how do we balance out when we think about death as an event and thinking about death as something that, you know, takes some event planning skills. How do we balance out the person doing the planning's emotional state and exhaustion and taking into account all of these opinions and feelings of people that care who are also, you know, grieving, mourning, and having all that emotional journey. So correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like we are going to answer a question of how do we do this with the answer of you ask a lot of questions. And and I can imagine that for certain types of people planning under these kind of circumstances that it could feel really wonderful to be able to ask a lot of different people opinions and thoughts and things, because it probably takes the pressure off of having to be the big decision maker. Exactly. And I could see other people in a position where they just want to run right through plan everything the way they view it, because that is simpler. That's easier. It's kind of like the parent who says, gosh, parenting is easier when my spouse is away, you know, I get to make all the decisions and no one questions or challenges or like, you know, comes up with a different idea. Am I right in thinking that the thing we need to do in the very beginning planning stages, whether we have a directive or not, is to ask a lot of questions? No, absolutely. And I think that it's, it's so important. And yeah, regardless of what the person's orientation to question asking is, is that you do kind of have to do it. That said, I think that it doesn't mean that you have to ask, you know, your mail carrier. Death is something that affects individuals, but it also affects community, right? And we don't have to really... When we're talking about the event that immediately follows death, whether it's a funeral or memorial service, we can put some boundaries around whose opinion really matter. And we can really think about, okay, who are the people that are most impacted Mm -hmm. by this death? The people that are really, really going to care about what the funeral and the memorial service look like. And then we kind of have then a constrained 
idea that we can, when I'm working with families, that then the families kind of have an idea of, of who they then go out to talk to. Check and it doesn't, yeah. yeah, it doesn't feel like this overwhelming, like I need to talk to everybody that ever knew the person that died. And instead it's like, nope, you know, because not everybody is going to have strong feelings right. about the funeral and the memorial service. And, and some people will. And so if you have a sense in your life of who are the people that are really going to care, then those are the people that you're going to get opinions from. And even if it feels overwhelming, one of the beautiful things about getting a lot of diverse opinions is that you also get a lot of diverse stories about the person because generally someone's opinions about what should happen at a funeral memorial service are going to be based on their relationship. So it opens up that storytelling processing of grief, which can be a really beautiful thing. And it also exposes you to things that you might not know are options. And one of the things that is coming out of this, obviously, if you're going to ask a lot of people, then you're going to have to find a way to reconcile a lot of decisions. And you might learn about, you know, a ceremony type or something that is an easier way to balance all of these opinions than kind of the set thing that we see on TV all the time about how a funeral needs to proceed. So there's a lot of good that can come out of this process, even though it might feel overwhelming and exhausting. I think that was one of the most eye-opening things for me. I know I've said there have been a number of eye-opening things <laughs> throughout our work together, but when we were working back on uh, during when we were writing the book, the idea that asking any and all, even even things that might seem like they're in conflict, like the very basic, is it going to be a burial or is it going to be a cremation, that you were really keen on making sure that people who are supposed to be asked or who are in this group that either the family or the loved ones or the people closest to the disease have determined or are kind of the opinion providers yeah. that it's okay if these opinions are different. And there might even be things that your end of life coordinator and funeral director knows that you don't know that could allow for both these things to happen. Um, You and I talked about things I hadn't even heard of before. Like I didn't know that you could spend time with the body or that in some religions or cultures, there are actual rituals around that time with the body that are important to pay attention to and things. And it was so meaningful to me to hear that really anything you're thinking of during these planning stages, talk about it with your, you know, funeral director, end of life specialist, because you, you just never know what's possible and what they've seen. I mean, you, you plan these and work around these all the time. It is your job. It is your daily in and out life. You've seen all the amazing things that can happen to bring something together well and and represent the most people possible. I also am am always learning about new things. And that's, you know, again, you know, just the asking of people what they feel and what they need. You you never quite know what's going to come up. And it is so helpful to be able to do that and to hear and to hold. And yeah, like I think the the burial versus cremation, again, this kind of comes down to something that we also talked about, where kind of knowing what it is that that you need. And so, you know, if the burial is more about the idea that you get to spend a little bit more time with the body, like absolutely, like that is a very easy thing that I think most people don't really know is that you can come in and and spend time with a body, you know, in a funeral home or we've kind of gone back to older ways where there's people that, that actually keep the bodies at home and have the celebration at home the whole time, but that Mm -hmm. then you can have a cremation afterwards. 
Right. Like, um, so both would be possible. Yeah. Both are always possible. Not all. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There is never an always, but in most cases that that is going to be possible. And I think another thing that comes up for people is there's fears about maybe sometimes the way that somebody dies is going to put a limit on things mm-hmm. and to be okay asking about if something is still possible, because I think that there is a lot that can be done that isn't knowledge that's out there in the world, but that particularly a a funeral director or somebody that's used to working with people at end of life, a home funeral guide, if this is going to be happening in the home where you might feel like if somebody died, maybe in an automobile accident or, you know, or something like that, where that's something where no, like we were just going to have to do a cremation. And that isn't always the case. You mean like Um, no viewing of the body or no viewing of the body, no interacting with the body. body. Yeah. Yeah. And it just so, doesn't have to be that way, that it's traditions are changing and, and there's more openness to really giving those who are mourning what they need. And and yeah. And so again, it comes back to not being afraid to ask. And I mean, and afraid maybe isn't quite the right word, but okay. because as we talked about, we're so cut off from, from death. It, it is very normal that people just don't feel like they know what to do or what's right or what should be asked. And that confusion is really normal. And that there is an awful lot that a funeral director, an end of life specialist, a home funeral guide, whatever it is, is going to be able to say, that is a really valid question. And here's the options around that. And then you can connect back to, if you're the one planning, this is what my individual needs are, but I've heard from these other people, you know, in this circle of, of opinions, and then, you know, you can keep working through it. This actually brings me to another point that you and I had made when we were speaking long ago for the book. And that was that, you can also switch funeral directors if you're not, and there are some things people can't do, right? There's like, I think right now we cannot do home cremations, correct? But which, but by the way, I get asked about that a lot. Just so you know, I was asking for myself. I really wanted a home cremation as, as my end of life directive. And Michelle let me know that wasn't particularly possible, but that aside from anything that really cannot be done, you know, by law or because it's, it's not appropriate to do it, that it's okay for you to also say, you know, I'd like to talk to some other funeral directors, or I'm going to sort of, I don't want to say shop around, but I am going to talk with other people about how they might do this. And that that is another place where you have an option that sometimes people really feel like they don't have an option. And it can feel very uncomfortable, but it's absolutely true. A funeral director is a service provider. You know, they are in a sense, you're hiring them to work for you. Yes. And this might make me, you know, less than popular with my, <laughs> with my fellow funeral directors, because obviously we, 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 it is a business and we want to keep your business. But if for any reason you feel like you're not being heard or they're unable to accommodate something, you know, kind of funeral directors have a bit of an ethical responsibility to say, you know, what you're doing is absolutely something that you can do. We can accommodate that. Here are some people that, that you can, but they may or may not, or it may just be, there's a, you just don't feel right. Or it's just it's not a good like a vibe. Yeah. Yeah. You don't like the vibe and all of that is, is okay. And really it is, I mean, unless you're going to go with somebody completely across the country uh, in like, in really switch venues, it's not a huge logistical challenge to go with another funeral director. And it is certainly always okay to get another opinion. It's most commonly, I think the weird that people might feel okay with it if it was about price but you can carry that okay asking about can somebody do this for something that i can afford that attitude can carry into i'm not 
really vibing with this person. If I call this person, maybe I'll have a better connection with them. Um, because one of the things that we talked about at the beginning is that as the person or people that are responsible for planning, you've got this extra burden mm-hmm. and you're already exhausted. And so it's really important that you feel supported yeah. by the person that's working through that. And that is going to be a question of, you know, personality and, yeah. you know, and yeah, age and relevant, all these things. So it's really okay to, to find the person that, that is the best fit that said, you know, have a little bit of grace for a funeral director that is trying their hardest. There's a difference when somebody is, is trying and, and somebody is, is not, um, because there are unfortunately time constraints, you know, we don't have all of the time in the world to get it exactly the way that feels, feels best. Somebody that's willing to help you is a really valuable thing. In addition to finding somebody that is a really good fit for you. So we're in this position where we're working with our planner and we're talking with a lot of the different family members or people close to the deceased. And we really do start at some point making decisions yes. and that can feel both good and tough as, as everything throughout this process can. But what do you think are some of the biggest points about actually making the decisions once we've gathered the information? A big thing is to do your best if you're the person planning to accommodate everyone's decisions, but also recognize that you, you're not going to be able to potentially accommodate everybody's opinion. There's going to be a lot of potential, very diverse feedback that, that you're getting. And, you know, you do have to make a decision. So thinking about how do you make the best decision? There's kind of two touchstones that I would advise people to follow through. And one is, honoring the life of the person lived. We never want to forget in a sense that, that as much as funerals are for the living, they really are in testament to this person that, that has died. And we want to honor their life and their values, even if they haven't left a clear directive or a directive at all, to know that there's probably some things that might be really out of keeping with their values or how they live their life. Um, and, and so that's kind of a nice touchstone to be able to come back to. What would this person want? And then the other is, you have the primary responsibility of being the decision maker to recognize that that doesn't mean that you get to just do what you want, Mm -hmm. but there is sort of a sense of having heard everything. The things that are the things that you're going to be able to carry out are the things that you're going to do that can lead to potentially if there's things that are, you're going to bring in and you don't feel like doing, you can ask other people to take over those or feel up to doing, you know, delegate. So it's, it's really okay to say, you know, I hear that this is important to you. This feels overwhelming, exhausting, unfamiliar, whatever it is to me. Can you take on this part of it? So it becomes a collaborative effort. And so I think that that's really where we come down to with with decisions is is what then can fit into that collaboration. And then, you know, there's some things for the, you know, if somebody is going to get left out to recognize that that that's hard, but it, it may be something. And again, like we talked about, the funeral is not the only event. So just to be about like if someone had really wanted a particular reading or to do a reading or to either hear a song or perform a song and they just you just got told, I'm sorry, we just don't have the time or it can't go on for forever. We would love to find another way to honor that portion of things that allowing space for that, even on your own, if it's a like, okay, my my aunts and uncles didn't let me speak at my grandmother's funeral, didn't let me sing a song, didn't let me play a song. I'm going to go find a time and place on my own where I can do that for my grandparent that I miss and that connects me with them in that way. 
it, it can be a tough moment to absorb, but that it's it's a good kind of reclaiming agency over your own grief move that yes. every single person involved in a any kind of end of life celebration or service can have in their back pocket to lean on and i i wish i had had that advice during like some of my grandparent funerals that i went to where i felt like somehow my connection to them wasn't you know going to be recognized unless I too was a part of this service and showed that I was doing something for it. And you learn as you get older and you go through a number of those things that that doesn't have to, to be the way that it is. And you can find other ways to, to feel that kind of honoring and that participation that you want. Yeah. And I think that there's a real beautiful opportunity to create a meaningful ritual outside of the scope of, of the funeral. I know that when I've dealt with you know, death for younger people and, and teenagers, that that's one of the biggest imbalances between what the family wants, especially, you know, if there are parents and, and what the friend group is going to want. And there's, that is perhaps some of the areas where there's the largest kind of divide and it's really collaborating with something in unity can be really hard there. And oftentimes I have given people, it's almost like they need permission, but once they get the permission, they run with it. So like, especially if it's the friend group, it's sort of like, you can do other things and they come up with these incredible things. And I think that one of the things, beautiful things that I've seen come out of that is the parents have been invited. And then like they were able to have the funeral service that really met their needs as grieving parents. And then they get to see their kid in this whole new light being celebrated by their peer group. And it's, um, it's been profound. And so I think that to recognize that in the moment, it can feel really bad and almost invalidating um, to be left out of a funeral service, but it doesn't mean that it's any less valid what you, what you come up with on your own. And it can in fact be incredibly meaningful to the people that also were a part of the funeral service that, that you, you know, your thoughts and, and opinions weren't able to be accommodated in. Audience, this is why I wanted Michelle to come on the podcast so that you could hear it straight from her mouth and why I loved our conversation so much is because I think you really do such a beautiful job of helping people find possibility and agency in grieving and mourning and honoring the deceased. And I think that is such a hard thing to do. And you do it, you do it so well, the way that you speak about it. I want to thank you so much for getting us through this kind of, I know it's not a one, two, three, because that's not how funerals are really planned, but through, through this first part, this first stage of planning and how to really navigate just so many of the different things that people are going to be balancing. Are there any closing thoughts for this particular part of the planning process or this particular sort of subject that we've delved into today that you have for our audience before we say goodbye for this time and you'll be back for more. I know. And, uh, yeah, I will, and I will be back. And I'm so grateful for this opportunity. I think that really the biggest part here, it comes back to kind of what I was saying at the beginning is just to recognize that this is hard. Yeah. And, and so, you know, that to, to be compassionate to yourself, if you're the one planning and to the fact that all of these people have opinions and things, then they're not trying to make anything more complicated than it is, but it's, that it, it's, they really care. And, and so to just to be aware of that and as open as possible to receiving, to hearing, to holding, and to, you know, just treating everyone with kindness and respect, even when something is really not just going to, to fit or isn't right for you or for the, it isn't in keeping with something that 
was really important to the person who has died. So that if we as planners, if we as people guiding planners, you know, here I am giving advice on your podcast, right? <laughs> can I think leave people with one thing? I mean, I'm going to make it two things right away. But the first is, <laughs> is, is compassion. Yeah. Approach all of this with compassion for yourself and, and for everybody else involved. And the second is is space. There is a time limit on when we're planning, particularly if it's going to be a funeral and not a memorial service. Things have to happen quickly. No one is particularly going to feel super ready, even if you've got a very, very clear directive to follow. And again, the funeral is not the only event. And, and you know, as I was saying before, that that there's just there are so many ways to have your needs met and so many, you know, just such a long time scale in which that can continue to happen. And so that's what I want to leave people with, I guess, today is the idea that is just to have a lot of compassion for yourself and for everyone else and to be aware that that space is a valuable thing here. You know, we don't necessarily have a long a lot of time, but we we do have a lot of space. And that space is all the time that's going to come after the funeral. Oh, Michelle, thank you once again so much. I really appreciate it. I know the next time that we get together, we are going to talk about the changes and challenges in funeral planning. And there certainly have been a lot, but maybe not as many as we think, which is an interesting conversation. So I'm really looking yeah. forward to our next segment together. Thank well, you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Lizzie Post, thank you once again for bringing us this interview. I find Michelle's perspective so, so helpful. I know. I feel like I learned so many things whenever I talk to her about this. And this particular one on on where to start and sort of how to manage it was probably the most illuminating for me when we were talking about the 20th edition. So thanks for supporting me bringing that conversation to the, to the Awesome Etiquette audience. Oh, no, I'm uh, so behind it. I can't believe it's <laughs> frankly taken this many postscripts for us to really address this topic directly. And yeah, once again, I just say I, I really appreciate your and Michelle bringing this to us and can't wait for the next installment in this I series. I know, there's still more to come. <laughs> Thanks, cuz. We like to end our show on a high note, so we turn to you to hear about the good etiquette you're seeing and experiencing out in the world, and that can come in so many forms. Today, we have a lovely salute from Joyce. Dear Lizzie and Dan, my mailman Jim brought a bundle of mail to my door. I was surprised, since my mailbox is at the bottom of the driveway on the street. Jim said to me, I noticed a lot of cards had been coming to you, and the letter from the funeral home. Then I realized I had not seen your husband working in the yard recently. He offered condolences and said, let me know if you need a hand around the house, like lifting something heavy or a quick fix, since I come by every day. Mm. Although this happened many moons ago, I've not forgotten Jim's extraordinary kindness. Here's my salute to Jim. May God bless him and wish him a full recovery from double knee surgery. Thank you, Awesome Etiquette. You have also brought me moments of calmness and smiles on a weekly basis. I salute you as well. Best to you, Joyce. Joyce, that is so sweet. And may I also just say kudos to Jim because he, when he offered his condolences and he wanted to offer help, he gave a specific example and, and a way to access that particular offering. And I think that that is just such good etiquette when it comes to trying to extend an offer of help to someone who's going through a hard time. It's not just, Hey, I'm here to help whenever. And you put the burden on the other person to, f to figure all of it out. But they were specific things he could do. He's there every day. So ask any time. Really, really wonderful efforts on his part. Joyce, thank you so much for sending us a salute about Jim. Joyce, I also loved hearing your salute. And 
like Lizzie, it was that little detail, that lifting something heavy, and the since I come by every, every day, day, yeah, that that brought a little, a little, a little moistness to the corner of my eye because it, it gave me a sense of community, and that can really be something to to hold on to when times are tough. Also, thank you for your salute to awesome etiquette. We certainly appreciate it. And thank you for listening. And thank you to everyone who sent us something and everyone who supports us on Patreon. Please connect with us and share this show with friends, family, and coworkers, however you like to share podcasts. You can send us your next question, feedback, or salute by email to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com. You can leave us a voicemail or text at 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463. On Twitter, we are at emilypostinst. On Instagram, we are at emilypostinstitute. And on Facebook, we're both Awesome Etiquette and the Emily Post Institute. Please consider becoming a sustaining member to keep our show going by visiting patreon.com slash awesome etiquette you can also subscribe to the ads version of our show on spotify or your favorite podcast app and please consider leaving us a review it helps our show ranking which helps more people find awesome etiquette our show is edited by chris albertine and assistant produced by bridget dowd thanks Thanks, chris Chris and and Bridget. bridget